0: to Oxpots, the podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. In 18th century England, while famous writers such as Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift were making a living through their published works, a small but growing number of women also started to live by their pens. However, because of the way women were perceived in the public sphere, they were not able to write about themselves in the way that men did. I'm Flora Symington, a second year English student at Somerville College, and I'm here with Professor Christine Gerard, fellow and tutor in English at Lady Margaret Hall and faculty lecturer in 18th century literature. So just give a brief introduction to what we're going to be talking about. In 2017, Professor Christine Gerard gave the keynote address at the BAKEA conference in Turkey entitled Memory in the Eighteenth Century Female Poet. In this talk, she discussed the difference between memory as expressed by female and male poets of the period, and this sparked an interest in women and memory that Professor Gerard has been pursuing ever since. Professor Gerard, could you explain how
1: you became interested in this subject? I began my interest in women and memory partly through an edition of 18th century poetry, which I carried out with a colleague, Professor David Farah from Leeds University, I ended up editing quite a lot of the women poets in this volume, and I was very struck by how differently women talked about selfhood and identity and their relationship to others, uh, to, to male poets. I was struck by the fact that Certainly, by the middle of the eighteenth century, uh, male poets were quite conscious of their the sources and origins of their own creativity, and would write about themselves, uh, their childhoods, their poetic and creative evolution. And this wasn't a subject that women tended to address. And this is partly because women uh, were not allowed to display themselves in public. If they did, they were regarded as immodest. the 17th century, women were regarded as being little better than prostitutes if they exposed themselves on the stage or in writing, in print. So so there is a a veto against female self-exposure and women who did talk about themselves in that kind of way, uh, certainly their personal interest, certainly their creative or writing interests, ran the risk of public censure. And so when Women did write about the past and about memory. They tended to write mostly about their memories of other people. I was very struck, for example, by the late 17th century writer Lucy Hutchinson, who be- who is a notable poet and wrote a famous work called Order and Disorder, rather like Paradise Lost. She wrote some wonderful poetry, but her memoirs are in fact the memoirs of her husband uh, Colonel Hutchinson and I think that that idea that women write and record the memories of other people is very much linked to the idea of how they perceive themselves as belonging to other people whether that is their parents or their husbands or their children. So one of the most popular forms I found when I was writing uh, producing material for this anthology what was the female uh, authored elegy and women write quite a lot about dead children because infant mortality was very high in the 17th and the 18th century but they also write and I think this this really intrigued me um about other women that they knew who wrote so I participated recently in a volume called The Circuit of Apollo, which was called Women's Tributes to Women. And quite a lot of those were where women write about other creative women writing and what inspired them. So this is the backdrop to my interest, and it has remained ongoing. I would also say that I found giving this lecture in Turkey, in Sivas, which was the site of a massacre of Western journalists, uh, some years previously, uh, for their support of the satanic verses, it was a disturbing and, and, and in in many ways, thought provoking experience, which made me think a lot about women in Turkey and women as repositories of cultural memory and family memory. And of course, in the current climate, I, I feel that this. Is, with with the recent disasters and the natural disasters that have occurred, it feels such a a poignant and pertinent theme. So, so in a way, the whole the whole thing also became bound up with the place at the time. Mm-hmm. And for me, that made me think lo- more more in larger terms about gender and memory and uh, and how women in some places and perhaps still in others are are were and still are their voices are suppressed. So there was a kind of agency or or particular dynamism invested in my pursuit of this topic. I think that's probably what's driven it. And I've been on a quest to kind of recover how women conceptualized and retrieved their own inner memories, their own childhood memories, their voices, and how later on in the 18th century, they used those to talk about their own creativity. So this is this is the backdrop to it all. It, it, it in a way is quite a political, a political act, I think.
0: No, absolutely. Um, you've touched on this a little bit, but I just wanted to read a quotation from your 2017 speech. Um, you say that the May that male poets wrote about memory and the self did not sit comfortably with the habits and expectations of the 18th century female proprietary why do you think it is that women didn't write about the self in the same way that men did or that they weren't able
1: to well i think for two to, for two reasons i think one of them uh, as i said i think is linked to the strong strongly ingrained idea that a woman's seen in private life alone which is a quotation from alexander pope's epistle to a lady of 1735 so women were expected to behave with public propriety and not to exhibit themselves to public gaze, and certainly in print it was tricky. So there is a reason why women who uh, authored texts about themselves and their lives, particularly if those lives were in any way less than proper, ran the risk of censure. So just to give an example, a poet that I'm very interested in, a woman called Martha Fook, wrote uh poems about herself and her childhood and a memoir of hers uh, was was also published and she really became vilified for it uh, after she died she became obscure she was forgotten by by literary culture and i've recently produced an edition which i hope to publish online of her of her writings but the other reason I think so, public shame and bringing the family into disrepute, I think was 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 part of that. But I I wonder too whether women lacked the confidence to think about themselves, having both a public and a, a kind of creative identity. So one has to think about women's education that even middle class and aristocratic women obviously didn't attend university. They didn't go on to have public careers. So, they didn't have a public sense of identity. Their their identities would be constructed around their roles as wives and daughters, wives, and mothers. And I think that the tenuous movement towards self conceptualization as a creative person is something that takes a long time to be established. I think, in other words, that women don't think of themselves as continuous identities. Their identities in some ways are, are made up of their relationships with the people that they that they nurture and, and care for. And to some extent, I think that's still true. So I think it takes a lot of confidence for a woman to say, well, this is when I started getting interested in writing poetry and I started producing my first novel when I was 16 or whatever. We can do it now. But I think that, that idea of tracing a thread of creativity all the way through your life to early childhood, is rare, and it does start to happen. But I, I you know, I, I I don't think that most women would have thought of themselves in that kind of way. Even writing women, they always their writing was always sanctioned in a way by uh, it, it, writing that, that 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 was religious or devotional. So the things that women could write about were limited. They could write about uh, their children. They could write about poems of praise to family members but they re- they were very nervous about writing about themselves and in fact one of the ways that they that they did that when they did I'm thinking here about um, a poem by uh, mary jones a poet in the mid 18th century that they that they modeled themselves on alexander pope's uh, autobiographical poem um, an epistle to dr arbuthnot so so even when they were writing about themselves, they they, they borrowed models that came from, from from men as if to somehow sanction this. So I think that it takes quite a lot of courage and self-confidence for a woman to do this. And if she has a family and she has family members, she has a lot to lose. I think the women who did break silence and spill it spill it all out were often people who who had already got nothing to lose by that and I'm thinking that Martha Fook was probably one of them and another one was Letitia Pilkington who we can talk about in in a moment if you like
0: yeah absolutely so so Letitia Pilkington is an example of these kind of women you've seen speaking about who didn't write who wrote their own memoirs but tended to conceive these memoirs through their relationships with other people so you described um, the way that she wrote about her own life is is focusing on the marketable details so the details of her life that she felt would be of interest and acceptable to her, to her readership um, so i guess my, my main question would be how do you think the way that women's writing was received at the time affected what they wrote what they were able to write so in a situation where women did write memoirs
1: how were they impacted by the readership Well, there are very few examples of women who do write memoirs. And when they did in, say, the 1740s and 1750s, they were designed to make money for the people who wrote them because the women would be desperate for money. So two of them would be Constantia Phillips and also Letitia Pilkington. One of the interesting things about Pilkington's memoirs is that she she wrote them because she was poor and she needed to make money and she had had a literary career in friendships with a lot of different men the the background of her story is is actually a very sad one i think she grew up as the daughter of a dutch obstetrician in dublin and was very friendly with the great writer Jonathan swift part of and she was part of swift's circle she married a cleric called Matthew Pilkington, who was also a poet. She was, deep, you know, highly talented. And one of the reasons I think Swift was so interested in her is because she was bright and clever and could write and she could memorise texts and recite them off by heart. Um, and they had a quite playful intellectual relationship, not, not an improper one. But she married Matthew Pilkington, who was far less talented than his wife. She often wrote some of his poems for him. And the marriage was not a happy one. They had several children but he finally set her up to he had relationships and affairs with other women he then set her up with somebody and caught her in flagrante delicto and there was a great public scandal surrounding this exposure of her apparent infidelity she was cast out by swift and by society in general and so she wrote a series of memoirs to try to make money, and of course because she knew a lot of people who were high up, including Swift and others, uh, there was an element of the Kiss and Tell memoir about this, so that's why she wrote about other people, because she knew that it would sell. But one of the interesting things about the memoirs, I think, is that it was also her opportunity to publish her poems which she had never managed to get done before so she filleted into the memoirs lots of her own poems she had always hoped that she would get a subscription publication of her poems but nobody wanted to publish her because she was too notorious so this was a way of in a way producing uh, a, a, a poetry volume at the same time as it was a volume of of memoirs but she when she writes about herself in 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 that the memoirs it's very much in in relationship to her meetings with with mostly with men who are are well known and she does come across it's a very performative self it's a witty self she 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 presents herself as somebody who's very robust and very resilient Mm -hmm. which is is and funny and tough and it's quite an engaging self the other aspect of it and it's okay if i talk about this is is where A lot of her writing, she said that she wouldn't be able to produce such a long volume if she hadn't known so much or memorized so many texts by other authors, which she could also add to the volume or the volumes, three volumes. And what I find very interesting about Pilkington is not only that she's remembering her own childhood and the people that she knew, but also that she had a prodigious, almost photographic memory for texts. I think she grew up learning poetry, mostly poetry. She obviously loved it. She would have probably been a great student of English literature these days. Uh, She knew Shakespeare off by heart, uh, many plays, many poems. And this proved very useful because uh, when she quotes from these authors in the memoirs uh, she mostly was doing it from memory because by this time she was on the move in Dublin she was living in lodgings. she had no access to the books that she could have copied bits out from but what's particularly interesting about the quotations with which she peppers her memoirs when she's talking about her life experiences is that that she uses them as a way I think of talking about deeply difficult and personal experiences. So there is quite a lot about male domination and about male violence. So in a way, I think she talks about Angelo and she she quotes a lot from An, uh, uh, Angelo and Isabella in Measure for Measure. She becomes, as it were, the Desdemona to her husband's um, Othello. There's a lot of ways of talking about male power structures that she she she, she sort of gets into the text of the memoirs through a literary parallel and it's quite a covert way of, of, of doing that but also perhaps a way of slightly distancing it from what must have been a deeply painful experience. Often when she talks about sorrow and affect and emotion that again comes through quotations from writers like James Thompson in The Seasons where he talks about the pitying tear and you, you can see that that it's probably a way of her handling things that, that were really difficult and it's somehow easier to do it by using other people's voices to write about the experience that you felt. So there's something that mediates between the personal and the impersonal in the use of those quotations.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to think about it that way, because what I was going to ask you just before you said that was mm. you think the memoirs are kind of a means to an end. She writes about personal things as a way of getting her writing out there and as a way of publishing her poetry, but actually that sounds like it's more like the other way around. She's actually using quotation and she's using words from the public domain in order to share something
1: actually deeply personal. So I don't I don't know what you think about that. Do you think it pulls in both directions? I think it pulls in both directions, yeah um and i think i think the memoirs are, are fascinating because they do so much work in 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 a way mm. uh, and there are many different sides of of pilkington that come through in 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 the memoirs whether she was conscious of this i don't mm. know but that's certainly how it reads and perhaps to a modern reader who thinks about trauma i'm often struck when i work on the 18th century how brutal uh, life was in a way at, at those times to women um, women who wished to end an, a, a brutal or unhappy marriage lost everything. They lost their children, they lost their sources of income, they lost their reputation, and and it was it, it sort of accepted. And even Pilkington, in in a way, I think, the resilience that people had to exhibit who were who were women are very resilient. They they had very difficult lives, even even middle class women who fell on hard times. And sympathy for disgraced women was not high. And so you can see that on the one hand, the self that she publicly advances in the text is this is a very um very cheerful, buoyant um uh, self, you know, saying I oh, oh, you look how witty I am, you know, I used to play the word games with the great Dean Swift. You know, there's there's a lot of that cleverness and pleasure in her own uh, cleverness and that yet there's also a vulnerability which i think is 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 felt through the choice of the of the dramatic situations that she quotes from because you know these are tragedies basically so the life the life that she presents is one of robustness and resilience and yet the tragedies in it are coming from shakespeare often and other dramatists as well are deeply felt i suppose this is the thing is she it's not just her writing her first autobiography
0: it's a very new form at the time and she's discovering as much as anyone else's the way in which it will sort of catch up with you even if you're trying to present an incredibly robust and witty self actually your own trauma does come through and your Mm. own personal feelings will come through, despite the fact that that's not what she's necessarily trying to
1: achieve she's trying to present her life exactly marketable exactly Uh, exactly right and that's I mean I think probably she does want to gain sympathy for her situation from people and actually to set her side of the record straight which I can understand because if you're slighted and wronged in that way it's very very difficult I mean goodness knows we 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 know enough about that in the current time that that once people form a public opinion of you to to try to counter that is is often very very difficult no, absolutely,
0: and yeah. Well, I suppose we can be glad that she was able to write something, and that uh, it
1: survived, which yeah. is is actually fantastic. It's one of the great pleasures, actually, of knowing that the when the world thinks about her, that mm-hmm. they think of this person who was so able. Uh, think of a woman who was who was able to rise above what what could really have been an utterly horrendous uh, mm-hmm. a destruction of 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 everything that she had grown up with. She had a very comfortable childhood, and um, uh, you, you know, a very intellectual childhood in some ways. And then to end up as a sort of demi-mundane, living in a garret as a Grub Street writer, it's its pretty grim, actually. And the fact that it was published even during
0: her lifetime. Mm. I'm sure lots of these stories survive in women's diaries and private texts that we have access to now. But the fact that she was able to publish it in her lifetime is very unusual. Um, I wonder if we could just move on briefly to talking about Anne Yearsley, mm. another poet who was able to, as you say in your speech, the first female poet who can consciously draw on painful memories as a source of future growth and regeneration.
1: Well, so to explain a little bit about Yearsley, she was a working class or labouring writer who had no formal education. Now, I'm not saying that Pilkington had a formal education, but she grew up in a house filled with books and she had read very widely, clearly. Now, Yearsley was from Bristol and from a labouring family. She was a milk seller, but obviously highly intelligent and somebody who had great intellectual curiosity. She accessed books and learned to read and obviously had a, a love of writing and started to write creatively. She was taken up by two patrons, Montague, Elizabeth Montague and Hannah Moore, who saw in her prodigious talent. She also belonged to a trend for labouring writers, so, or self-taught writers, which became quite prominent in the second half of the 18th century. It started with Stephen Duck, the Thresher poet, Mary Collier, um, who wrote The Woman's Labour in 1736. But Yearsley was, was, was writing in the 1780s. And she's a particularly interesting case, because I think within her there is a strong spirit of rebellion and of innate conviction of her own talent and genius and she wrote as she wished. So instead of imitating other writers, she, she writes using some models, I think from, from James Thompson and earlier poets, but much of her writing is, is free flowing and, and very independent in, in, in thought. And eventually she disbanded her patronage network. These two women who, 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 basically got her work into print, also controlled her financial operations and told told her very patronisingly that her chief purpose really was to be a wife and a mother, this is in the preface to her poems, um, and they tried to control her life. She rejected them, basically, and she took control of her own finances, and she became somebody who had a widespread audience in Bristol and she wrote as she wished and she developed a reputation as somebody who published by subscription, so a little bit like modern-day crowdfunding. And I think she had the confidence that came from uh, possibly the fact that she was out of the middle-class framework to, to write as she wished. And one of her most interesting poems, which, which anticipates but predates Wordsworth's the Prelude, which charts the growth of a poet's mind, is a poem called Clifton Hill. Clifton, of course, for those who know, is outside Bristol and it was where Yearsley grew up. And the poem is a landscape poem. It deals with prospects and vistas from, from Clifton Hill. But it's unusual because Yearsley uses the landscape as a way of talking about her own inner feelings. and and her past, and so her childhood memories, her memory of her mother, who tragically died of starvation, is sown into the landscape. And as she moves through the landscape, for example, she she comes across her mother's grave, which kind of appears um, within this psychological landscape. It's a real landscape, but it's invested also with memories. Um, she talks about another woman, a mad woman called, Louisa, who has escaped from a an arranged marriage, who's lost her mental faculties and who wanders around the hillside. And all of these figures, the dead mother's grave, the image of the fugitive Louisa, all become kinds of ways in which Yearsley talks about herself and her difficult life. And the poem ends with an invocation to memory. And this isn't memory as a cognitive... Uh, faculty where you learn bits of poetry off by heart in the way that Pilkington talked about memory she says memory tis a strain that fills my soul with sympathetic pain so so she she's able to talk about trauma and process trauma and and she had a very traumatic life through a poem which is about herself and her relationship with the landscape and her relationship with other women including her own mother and she moves on from the poem and and the poem ends and i feel that this is a really important poem because it it shows women processing things that have happened to them and their lives and their creativity and seeing also perhaps as wordsworth later does that trauma can be a source of creativity so one of the big themes of the prelude is the 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 pain which the the young Wordsworth feels when he walks past a landscape and recalls his father's death, and he then describes it later as 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 a, as as a fountain from which he would refresh himself, which seems odd and paradoxical because it's also a memory of pain. But but the pain and the memory of the pain becomes part of his identity, and it shows and it shows actually to him how he becomes a poet who understands other people he the still sad music of humanity uh human suffering is wordsworth's great theme and but it's interesting that somebody like yearsley uh anticipates this she writes mm. about this kind of thing before wordsworth does so it, it's not it's this is not an imitation of wordsworth if anything it might be round the other way because mm. it is i mean that feels like quite
0: a familiar idea now that we sort of take it for granted that post-romantic period that poets are inspired by pain and by trauma and that's something that's very important to art we're gonna have to finish now but i just wanted to ask you a final question i've noticed throughout the interview that you quote a lot of poetry from your own memory and a lot of the text that you talk about you do have by heart is that a deliberate thing do you think you have a different relationship to text that you when you can quote them from memory or I just uh, to- that's that. very
1: perceptive of you i now wonder whether whether my interest in memory and memorization and particularly my interest in Letitia Pilkington originally stemmed from my own ability to memorize texts and it isn't something that I do deliberately when a text means something to me then I remember it off by heart often and quite, quite large chunks of it and I've been able to do this ever since I was an undergraduate reading English at Oxford and texts stick with me particularly those which seem to speak to something inside myself. And so I think I have an understanding of why Pilkington does what she does, because she talks about herself through her texts, and it is a way of processing certain kinds of emotion. Mm. So I, I think that I'm a great fan of people memorising texts. I would I really like to see more people in schools do recitals of poems that they've chosen, not any random poem, but something that means something to them and getting them to recite them out loud. Because in times of trouble, poetry can be a great comfort as well. Um, I mean, it becomes a part of who you are. You remember it, and and it speaks to you in particular kinds of ways. At different times, it can give you courage. It can give you comfort. It can give you it can give you words to process something which may not be entirely coherent to you as you're as you're moving through. So I think it has great value. Oh, well,
0: thank you so much, Al. That was a wonderful insight into into the lives of these women, and also into what we might be able to learn from them. So yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of OxPods. If you enjoyed it, please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too. To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at
1: www.oxpods.co.uk.